Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. So as I mentioned before, we're in this series called Problem of God, and we're taking a look at some of the skeptical questions and some of the doubts that we often can have about faith, and we're saying, let's have a real conversation about it. And we've kind of been using this kind of theme phrase for this, about saying that it's better to base our beliefs on, beliefs on what is true rather than what we feel or what we want to be true. And so today, as I mentioned before, we're talking about sex, and we're talking about what the Bible and what God actually has to say about sex and how it's actually quite different from what our common perceptions and our common views are about it. And maybe you're here and you're thinking, oh, this is, this is the week I showed up. The pastor's going to talk about sex. You know, I just want to invite you. Don't check out just yet. Um, let's take some time and let's dig into this together. And this whole sermon series is actually based on a book uh, by Mark Clark called The Problem of God. And if you maybe picked up a copy of the book, and I'd encourage you to, uh, we're kind of tracking through some of the chapters of this book and some of the topics that he hits in this and works on. Because these are real questions that we have to deal with sometimes. And, and some of the pieces that we've talked about in this series, uh, we talked about God's existence. We talked about science and faith and how they're actually more aligned than we think they are. We talked about suffering and evil. And last week we talked about hypocrisy. And we're talking about these things that can be tripping points. And when it comes to sex, what we're going to do today is we're going to spend two, we're going to look at two predominant views. And so um, next slide for me. There's kind of two we'll call them two sexy views of what our culture thinks about sex and what our culture thinks the church has to talk about sex. And then we're going to spend some time looking at what, um, what Jesus says, what Paul says, what the scriptures actually point to when it comes to this. So the first one, if you can put it up for me, is this. Sex is an appetite. And we've talked a few times in this series about how if we are just the product of our naturalism, our biological drives that we just evolve biologically with no uh, external guidance, no divine intervention, nothing like that. If we are just products of our biology, then sex is an appetite. It's just a hunger we have to fulfill. It's just like needing to have a drink of water uh, or feeling hungry. It's just a biological drive that we are driven to meet. And this biological drive, if it, if it is that way, what it leads to is it saying that this is just about self-gratification, that sex is just about me. It's just about whatever makes me feel good. And so this biological drive, if it's all just survival of the fittest and we have this drive to make our genetic material pass on to the next generation, then it's just a hunger and it leads to a very self-centered focus. It says it leads to believing that sex is only about what makes us feel good. And this is a common um, view and thought point that if you actually dig under our culture, this is what really comes out the most, this one, that sex is just an appetite. And in fact, it's this appetite when we think that it's just about self-gratification and self-pleasure. That's, about, that's what leads us to normalizing um, things way back in history and even some cultures practice them to today. Things like having a harem or having concubines because if you have the means and you can get it that way, why wouldn't you? Because it's just a biological drive. It's just what we're all driven to do by our biology. But the problem with that is what it leads to. When we take a self-centered focus and approach on sex, it leads to some things that start making us scratch our heads and say, wait, is this really the value of humanity? 
Because it's things like this, it's this attitude that is just about me and whatever I want and my own pleasure is what leads to things like sex trafficking, prostitution, and even pornography use. These are all expressions of our sexuality that are self-centered, self-appetite driven. And just like anything, you know, it's called, prostitution is called the oldest trade in the world because essentially people realize that, hey, if someone wants this, if it's an appetite to feed, I can make money off that. And so things like organized crime take a hold of this, and we, we know that sex trafficking is incredibly damaging to women. We know that it's incredibly damaging to the people who, who choose to buy and procure sex. And even people will say, well, pornography, it's just an image on a screen. It's just a video. It's just something I do on my own. That doesn't ha- cause any harm, but it does. Because every person in an image is someone who matters to God. Every person in an image is someone who usually, and if, if you peek behind the curtain at some of the articles that have been written, that most pornography is produced under duress. It's produced under the influence of drugs and alcohol and extortion. This is an industry that victimizes the most vulnerable people. And we try to gloss it up and say, oh, well, it's a lifestyle. It's something they're choosing to do. It's two consenting adults. But the reality of it if you peek behind the curtain, is that it is an entire industry built on victimization, on harming and damaging some of the most vulnerable people of our society. And in fact, there's a growing body of evidence, and this is not coming from a Christian background. This is not coming from uh, a religious institution. This is an entirely secular organization that that's, was founded a couple years ago called Fight the New Drug. Uh, and if you're on the Version event, there's a link to it there if you want to check out some of their research and their studies. But Fight the New Drug is an organization devoted to helping people realize the damage that pornography consumption has on ourselves. When we feed this sex is appetite, when we feed this self-centered, this is how it's rewiring your brain. This is how it's affecting you and why, essentially, their slogan is that porn kills love. That pornography consumption actually makes it harder to be able to love and engage with people. And uh, there's, in fact, there's this whole phenomenon that's happening that they, they're starting to build terms around it and call this a medical diagnosis uh, called porn-induced erectile dysfunction, of where someone actually cannot get aroused by a real person in front of them because they don't match the image that they've seen hundreds of thousands of times or even a couple of times. When you're not able to be with someone in an intimate way because they don't match the fantasy that's been playing in your mind for so long. That's becoming a whole medical field. And in fact, there was a recent study done, I think it was University of Columbia, where they had to cancel the study because they couldn't find enough students to be a control group who were not regular consumers of porn. And in fact, as the studies keep going, this is not a gendered issue. This is not a men's issue anymore. In fact, the gap between men and women in pornography use is getting smaller every single year. And it all comes down to this sex as an appetite. If we think it's just a biological drive, that's what it leads to. If we think that it's just about me, it's just about my own enjoyment, that's what this leads to. It leads to endorsing these organizations that are victimizing people that really we ought to be caring for. And so that's this first part of sex is appetite. And it actually leads to one that's kind of a subset of sex is appetite that's a common one where sex becomes God. It becomes what we're driven for. It becomes what we're, we're searching for all the time. Uh, and it really becomes the driving factor of we say, well, it's underneath everything. It's, it's the reason why we relate to one another. It's the reason why we connect, the reason why we get married, the reason why we date. 
And there's some truth under that, that God gave us sexuality because it's actually part of how we relate and interact with other people. Um, and in fact, the church is often has consumed and narrowed down sexuality to just be about one thing when it's actually, we have to view sexuality as part of how we relate with people, how we relate, how we interact. And in fact, when we come to this sex as an appetite or we take it one step further and sex becomes our God that we worship and that we devote ourselves to, even subconsciously, we often don't recognize we've taken that step. It taints our relationships and it taints the way we interact with one another. That's not what was meant for us. And so the second view that comes up is that, and this is one that oftentimes people think is this, that's this, that sex is bad. Um, now how many of you maybe learned, um, went to youth group as a teen? I, I'm hoping you didn't have the youth group experience I did, and I'm not going to point fingers or name names at what church is in or anything, but I remember this youth night where they gave each of us two wrapped pieces of gum, like, you know, kind of the stick kind, not the little chiclet packs. They gave us two pieces, and they, they told us to unwrap one and put it in your mouth and chew it. And after we'd chewed it for a while, they said, okay, now spit it out in your hand and offer it to someone. And I'm kind of like, this is weird. Uh, Where's this going? What's going on? This is really odd. That's why we didn't hand out gum as you came in. Um, And then they said, if you choose to have sex outside of marriage, you're going to be a chewed up piece of gum that no one wants. So take your second piece of gum and you keep that one wrapped. And, you know, you put it somewhere in your bedroom as the reminder. And I'm just sitting there like, this is weird. This is negative. Like, already at that point, I was somewhat aware enough to think, you know, I think God meant sex for something a little better than that. See, in fact, this is the message that the church has often been guilty of presenting. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Sex is dirty, nasty, and vile, so save it for the one you love. That's the church's attitude towards sex that often gets presented in youth groups of saying that you just, you know, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But, you know, if you wait... Your wedding night is going to be astounding. Your wedding night's going to be amazing. And we build up all these promises and expectations. And anyone who's been married knows, you know, your wedding day, you're exhausted. Like you've been up since the crack of dawn. You're, you've been, you know, doing everything. And you're, you've got the whole ceremony, the reception, the party. You get home late. All you want to do is just take off these uncomfortable shoes you've been wearing. And then we're supposed to say, oh, but that's the reward for everything. And the thing is, the problem is, oftentimes under things we get wrong, there's a little bit of truth. There's a little bit of truth that if we actually got to that piece of truth, we'd find what really matters. But we tend to miss it, and we tend to pile so many things on top of it that we lose what the truth really is. And so here's the truth. Sex is a gift from God. Let's put that up on the screen for you. Sex is a gift from God. God designed and created sex as a gift to us, to humanity. In fact, the Bible has an entire book about sex that we're going to get to in just a moment. But if we even go back to the very beginning of Scripture, God, you know, has this garden. He has Adam and Eve. He creates them. He declares everything good. Does anyone know what the first command that God gives to humanity is? Be fruitful and multiply. Okay? That's not very guarded slang for what God is telling them to do. Everything's perfect. They're in the garden. And in fact, they're even naked in the garden. They don't get clothes till afterwards. God created sex as a gift to humanity. And in fact, there's an entire book in Scripture in the Old Testament called Song of Songs. Uh, and chances are you've, you know, you've probably never really heard it quoted in a sermon because 
to be honest, it's a very explicit book. Um, in fact, this book, Song of Songs, uh, Hebrew boys and Jewish boys are not allowed to crack it open and read it until they're 13 years old. Uh, and I was kind of joking and, and saying, you know, maybe I should quote some chunks of it at length to help us realize what this book is, but I'm not even comfortable saying it out loud. Like, it's, it's that much. And so Song of Songs is this book, and it's this narrative of a, of a husband and wife uh, describing each other and describing their relationship. And it's not a lights off, sheets on, one position only. They're describing standing in front of each other naked and describing their bodies to each other. Like, okay, there's one part that I'm going to, and this isn't where they're describing themselves. This is at, near the end as they say what they're going to do. This is what the woman says to the man in Song of Songs. Uh, next slide. She says, come, my love, let us go out to the fields and spend the night amongst the wildflowers. What's she saying? Let's go have sex outside. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a police officer. I think there's some laws against indecent indecent exposure. So is it legal? No, probably not. But is it biblical? There's a pretty strong case for that you could take from Song of Songs 711. But I'm not going to be the one to challenge that against the courts. Like, say, oh, it's my religious right. Um, Please don't try that route. It's probably not going to go well. But this is what she says. Come, my love, let us go out to the fields. Let us get up early and go out to the vineyards to see if the grapevines have budded, if the blossoms have opened, if the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. She makes it even more clear that's what she's going for. And all these metaphors of fruitfulness... Uh, the, the Hebrew scholars and the people that study this actually say, yeah, each one of these is a euphemism. You can figure out what it's for. And then the, the last one, uh, next verse, 13, she says, there the mandrakes give off their fragrance and the finest fruits are at our door, new delights as well as old, which I have saved for you, my lover. So here you go. Here's your justification. Take a second honeymoon. New delights as well as old. You know, that's what this book is getting at. And in fact, there's a, there's a myth And there's actually certain groups of Christianity throughout history that have practiced and taught this, that sex is only for procreation. Well, here's the shocking part. Song of Songs, a book entirely about sex and about a husband and wife's relationship with each other, does not mention procreation once. This book is purely about sex for pleasure, sex for enjoyment. That's what scripture actually has to say, that that sex is a gift given to us by God that we ought to thank God for. You know, hey, it's Thanksgiving. That's why we lined this up this way. You know, you thought we'd talk about something else today, right? (laughs) But here's, let's take this one step more. God created us with nerves and locations that are only meant for pleasure. Let's just be blunt about that. In fact, this could be uh, this could be an evangelism method of how to share and talk about God with people. Have you ever had an orgasm? Do you want to know the God that created that for you? Like, come on. You know, would that open up a conversation? You know, or they might just shut you down. Who knows? If you, if you try that, let me know. I want to know how that story goes. But here's where this comes down to. Just like everything, sex has been tainted by the separation of God and humanity when sin entered the world. Just like everything that God created for us when he declared the world was good and everything in it was good, including sex at that point, everything got tainted when humanity broke the relationship between us and God. And so like everything, there are gaps between us and God that God is constantly trying to overcome and reach so that we can be in a deeper relationship with him. And so 
because sex has been tainted by sin, we have to learn how to use it well. And we get this already in our society. Here in Canada, if you want to own a gun, what do you have to do? You have to take a course. You have to prove to an authority that you know how to responsibly handle a firearm and use it in its intended method. You know, guns are fun. I don't own any guns, but people have taken me to the range shooting, and I love it, and it's a blast, and it's, it's fun. I like it. You know, I, I'm not a fan of hunting uh, myself just because I've really I've never tried it. And the idea of sitting in a tree stand for a really long time kind of, you know, makes me go a little crazy. But there's people that deeply love that and enjoy that. And I mean, I get that with fishing. Um, but maybe it's just because I've never tried hunting. But when we use firearms in the right way, they can provide for us in terms of providing delicious meat that I can throw on my smoker. Uh, or it can also be a source of enjoyment when you go to the range. See, we get this, that when we put boundaries and restrictions around it, when we exercise our freedoms within those boundaries, it's fun, it's enjoyable. Uh, Let me give you another example. When I turned 18, uh, my parents were actually able to give me a car. Um, It wasn't anything fancy. In fact, the car was built the same year I was born. Uh, It was an old car. Um, But before I was able to drive it, Um, there was some work that had to be done on it. And so my dad, uh, instead of him doing the work, he stood on the other side of the shop working on his projects and yelled instructions to me of how to change the shocks and do brakes. I had never done things like that before, but I had to learn how to maintain and work on the vehicle before I was allowed to enjoy the freedoms of having the vehicle. We get this in so many areas of our lives that when we actually learn how to use something properly, when we learn the boundaries around it, we can actually experience greater freedom and greater joy in it. And sex is the same way. In fact, this is what Paul, when Paul's writing a letter to the Corinthian church, this is the instruction he gives them about this. He says, uh, 1 Corinthians six twelve, you say, I'm allowed to do anything. And then Paul adds this, he says, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. This is Paul setting up the next verse where he says this. He said, you say food was made for the stomach and the stomach is for food. That's true. Though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord and the Lord cares about our bodies. Now, without the historical background, we don't realize how revolutionary what Paul is saying in this verse is. So let me, let me take you there for a moment. In the first century, the Greco-Roman world, so that was kind of, you know, Greek had been the dominant superpower, and then the seat of power transferred to Rome. But Rome was very influenced by um, Greek philosophers and Greek thought. And the Greco-Roman view, and this was the common worldview that surrounded the whole first century, was that um, we are a spirit or a soul trapped in a physical body. And the spirit and soul are completely separate. And in fact, the Greco-Roman worldview was that the only thing that matters is your soul. So it does not matter what you do with your body. So whatever feels good, you know, coming back to the sex's appetite, whatever feels good, do it because it doesn't harm your soul. Just, you know, do whatever you want with your body. And so the, the types of sexual practices that were happening in the first century would seem outlandish even to us in the 21st century. And this is what Paul's actually talking about earlier in 1 Corinthians 5. He calls out um, what happened is the, the leaders of the church in Corinth said, sent Paul a letter. They said, hey, we've got this situation. What do we do? And so Paul responds to that in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, you know that guy in your church who's sleeping with his stepmother? That's not cool. 
That's not what God intended sex for. That's 1 Corinthians 5. And then he's following it up with this teaching and this instruction of saying that under a Christian worldview, God created our bodies and he cares for our bodies. He wants us to use them well. And we get this in every other area of our life. Um, Next slide. Saying yes to a greater thing requires saying no to lesser things. If we want to say yes to the fullest expression of what God created sex to be for us, we have to be willing to say no to other things. And if you're married, your wedding vows probably had some form of the line of, you know, I commit myself to you forsaking all others. Because you're saying, I'm going to say yes to you, and I'm going to say no to everyone else, because this is the boundary, this is the set, the framework, that we will experience the greatest expression of this gift God made for us inside this context. See, understanding our boundaries gives us the freedom to live within them. And so let's talk about marriage for a moment. And in fact, this is kind of a neat area because um, statistics actually confirm what Scripture says. Um, so the next, next slide up there. Um, Wait and Gallagher did a, a large-scale study, and they, they asked a few things. And so when it came to frequency of sex, 40% of the married couples had sex twice per week. 20% of single and cohabitating couples have sex twice per week. So if you want to have more sex, be married. That's what this is pointing to. Uh, next slide. Satisfaction. 40% of married women said they were physically and emotionally satisfied in their sex life, compared to only 30% of unmarried women. Uh, And it carries over to men as well. Next slide. 50% of married men said they were physically and emotionally satisfied, 38% of unmarried men. In each of these markers, and again, frequency and and, uh, physically and emotional satisfaction isn't the whole picture, but this is a piece where the statistics confirm what Scripture is talking about. So when we talk about Song of Songs, there's this whole narrative through the book that forms of the husband and wife knowing each other deeply. And in fact, many times in scripture, the phrase to know is a euphemism for sex because when you're naked with someone, you know, you can't hide your blemishes. You know, when you're in your marital bed, you can't hide who you are. And it's that coming to the reality of knowing each other. But that type of a sex life takes work. It takes time. It takes practice. You have to learn each other. And that's why Song of Songs has all these chapters of buildup of learning each other um, before they get to the, the main event, so to speak. But there's one statistic that they came up with that Waite and Gallagher found that we can't quite ignore. Um, and so we've got to put it up as well. And that's this one. 15% of married couples have not had sex in the last six months to a year. Now, this isn't the way that God intended it to be. Now, again, there are all kinds of circumstances why a a married couple could have this statistic apply to them. You know, maybe there is something like you have a job where one of you is gone a lot of the time. Maybe there's travel and distance separating you. Um, You know, a lot of our military families experience that. That's not a bad thing. Um, Sometimes there's health issues. Sometimes it's, you know, pregnancy and newborn kids don't really, aren't that conducive. Um, You all know that. I don't have to go into detail. Uh, Or sometimes... (laughs) Sometimes there's other health issues. Sometimes there's stress. Sometimes there's other pieces. But the important thing is, how do you actually talk about these things and work it through? But sometimes um, there's no discernible reason for why a marriage bed has grown cold. In fact, this is something that Paul talks about in the very next chapter. Um, The the very next, after he gave the, the passage we just read in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 to 4, 
Here's what Paul says. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. This is the picture of marriage. We use this term mutual submission that comes up later uh, in Ephesians 5 when it talks about marriage. And now this is not, hear me very carefully, this is not an I own you, but it's the two of you coming together and saying, I give you authority over me. It's choosing to give yourselves completely to another in marriage. That's what forms the basis for you. You cannot use this as a domineering verse. Um, If you do that, you're misusing scripture. But this is freely coming and giving yourself to your spouse in marriage. In fact, it goes on to this, verse 5. He says, Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. He gives a clause. Afterward, you should come together again, so that's, you know, euphemism, you guys know what that means. Uh, afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's saying don't deprive each other. In fact, some of you, if you know your, your history a bit, you know there was this group of Christians that were called the Puritans. Um, and the Puritans were, uh, they took a very literal, conservative approach to Scripture. Like, so much to the point where they, like, they didn't celebrate holidays, they didn't celebrate birthdays. They were really, really conservative when it came to everything. Now, here's the funny part. Um, records from Puritan communities in the States show that there was multiple instances of the church excommunicating a husband for denying their wife sex. Could you imagine that? Like if, and, and we're not doing this, we're not doing this, guaranteed. If, you know, when you sit down, you, you meet with your pastor, you meet with an elder, and they say, so how frequently are you having sex? I'm not going to ask you that question. I'm just, I'm not going there. Um, but this happened in the Puritan communities, and men who refused to be in the marital bed with their spouse were excommunicated from the church and faced church discipline for depriving their wife's sexual needs. That's, you know, a very conservative group took that approach. We're not going there. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not asking those questions. Uh, you can find a marriage counselor. I'm not having those conversations with you. It's even, when I do pre-marriage counseling, this is awkward. Like, I don't, I don't even like, you know, anyways. You, you get it. You get what I'm saying. But here's where it goes next. Restoring intimacy, if that stat applies to you, or maybe you feel like maybe it does, you know, this isn't the time to be elbowing your spouse, but it's going to take work. It's going to take time. You know, and likely it's going to take sitting down with a counselor, someone who's trained to help you navigate um, some of the conversation topics that need to happen and need to be worked through. You're not going to suddenly turn into what Song Song of Songs describes overnight. It's just not going to happen. But you can choose together to talk about it, to wrestle with it. And maybe this will maybe prompt a conversation that needs to happen sometime about how do we take this step towards having a fulfilling sex life in our marriage. See, this is what Scripture actually says about sex. If we go to the next slide, we've already talked about how sex is a gift from God. And the second piece is that sex has a context. God created sex to be fully understood in the in the boundaries and constraints of marriage between a husband and a wife. That's what it was meant for. Um, And that context sometimes seems old-fashioned to our world, but there's a lot of reasons for it, and we can... um, I'm not going to go into all of them now. But inside that context is where the most fulfilling, where the most enjoyable, the proper way to use the gift that God gave for us. 
See, outside of its context, next slide, please, sex never reaches its fullest potential. Outside of that context of a husband and wife who know each other well, who are freely giving themselves to each other, sex doesn't reach its potential. And in fact, outside of its context, sex damages people. And we all know the pain that comes from that. You know, maybe you were in a relationship and you, you promised yourselves to each other and you said, no, we're going to be together forever. And then something happened and it fell apart and it broke your heart. Or, and this one, this one's, it's frustrating and it's disgusting, but sexual abuse happens whether we want to admit it or not. In fact, it happens even amongst Christians and it happens amongst the church and it shouldn't happen. It should never happen. But it does, and so we have to deal with that. Outside of its context, outside of the boundaries that God created for sex to be enjoyable, for sex to be part of what builds up a marriage and makes that relationship stronger, sex is damaging. So what about me? Where does that leave us? Now I want to tell you something that, that I believe wholeheartedly, something that Jesus t- talks about, that Scripture says wholeheartedly and resounds this over and over and over again in Scripture. But it's something that our world can't understand. And that's this. Your sexuality is not your identity. Your identity is not found in straight male or straight female or uh, your identity is not found in I'm single or I'm dating or I'm engaged or I'm married or I'm divorced. Those are not sources of identity. But our world says it is. In fact, our world goes one step further and says, your identity is found in your, your orientation, and whether you're gay, bi, lesbian, transgender, that's the source of your identity, and that's what our world is saying. But it's not what Scripture says. Scripture says this constantly, your sexuality is not your identity. Your identity doesn't have to be defined as a victim of sexual abuse. Your identity doesn't have to be defined by what's happened in the past uh, or things maybe you regret or choices that you made. Your identity is not defined by those things. I really want you to hear me on this. But the source of your identity is Jesus. The source of our identity is that God deeply loves us, wants to be in a relationship with us, and that no matter what the pain, no matter what the hurt, no matter whatever we feel, Jesus wants to heal us from that and take us on a path towards wholeness found in him. This is constantly through scripture. And so we're just going to look at one place where it says this. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, even before he made the world, and we talked about earlier that it doesn't matter if you want to believe in a 6 billion year old earth or a 6,000 year old earth. Scripture actually doesn't care about how God created, just that God created. So even before God made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and with fault in his eyes. We're going to do something right now. We're going to put this slide, uh, next slide, please. When I say this, I'm going to pause, and I want you to put your name in the blank. I want you to say your name out loud. Even before he made the world, God loved and chose in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Next slide, verse 5. This is what it says. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family, by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. See, this is what Scripture says. Our source of identity is Jesus. Our source of identity is that God loves us. Next slide. Our source of identity is found in being loved and adopted by God. 
That is the foundation of our identity of who we are. Not our marital status, not our orientation, not our choice to be celibate, not our choice of, of orientation or attraction. Our source of identity is Jesus. It doesn't matter how beat up or rejected or hurt we feel. We are not a chewed up piece of gum to God. We are loved. We are adopted. We are God's children. See, if you want to know the secret to the best sex life you could possibly have, it's this. A surrendered sex life is the best sex life. What I mean by surrendered is when we choose to recognize that our identity source is found in God, not in our sexuality, not in our frequency, not in our orientation, not in our marital status, our source of identity is found in God. When we actually choose to give that peace of who we are to God, that's where we find the fullest expression of the gift that God meant for us. When we put sex within the boundaries and the context that God meant it for, that's when it's the most fulfilling. That's when it becomes what God intended for it to be. And we all know that, that none of us are where we want to be on that. But are we willing to choose to see ourselves how Jesus sees us? Are we willing to choose, ourselves, choose to see ourselves surrounded by God's love, to be adopted in his family, to be loved by him? That's the approach. And so I'm going to invite the band to come back up, uh, and we're going to close with a song today. And this song is called King of My Heart. Uh, it's one of my favorite songs. It's, it's, I deeply love the lyrics of this song and what it points to. But here's what I want to ask you to do. If you're in that position and you're in that place of saying, you know, I, I'm not where I want to be on this. You know, there's pieces, there's wounds in my past or choices that I've made that I wish I could take back, that I wish I could let go of. Or maybe you've been sitting on the fence through this whole series and saying, you know, I, I like Jesus. I like what God has to say, but can't you just leave my sex life out of it? It's a common thought. It's a common um, viewpoint towards faith is that why can't we just leave sex out of it, the picture and just follow God with everything else we have? But that's not what God wants. In fact, so if, if that's the place you're at, I want to invite you just to, to reflect on these words, sing along with want, take a moment and pray about what would it take to reorientate our sex lives? What would it take to reorientate our identity around what God wants it to be? So I invite you to do that. Just you know, take a look up the screen, sing along if you want, take some time to pray, and I'll come back up and close after this. When the night is holding on to me, God is holding on. Let me pray. God, you know the condition of our hearts. You know the pains and the hurts that each one of us has. You know that all of us have identity wounds somewhere. But even though those things feel like they have a hold on us, we know the truth that you are holding on to us, that you hold on to each one of us. So God, wherever we're at, we want to come to you. We want our identity to be found in you. We ask that you would begin the work of healing us from our pasts, whatever they may be, that you'd begin the work of restoring us to what you want to be. And God, as we, as we go from this place, would you constantly remind us of this, of your love. May your love surround us deeply. May we recognize the truth of what it means that you adopted us even before we were born that you want us to be in a relationship with you and that you created good things for us to enjoy. 
So God, would you just come upon us with your love and your presence and help us to hold on to you. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We've got two weeks left in this series, folks. Uh, Next week, we're talking about the problem of exclusivity. And this is, oftentimes our culture has issues with the claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And so we're going to explore that one deeply. And then on the 21st, we're wrapping up this series with the problem of Jesus. Did Jesus really live? Did he rise from the dead? I mean, we know the answer is yes, but we're going to discuss that and we're going to talk about it together. And another thing on the 21st is we're having a baptism service. We've got a couple of people lined up. We're pulling out our baptism tank. If you're in that position where you're thinking it's time to make that declaration, that step of faith, um, fill out one of the connect cards, drop it in the black boxes, or you can fill it one online on our website through the In the Loop page. Folks, have a great uh, Thanksgiving weekend. We'll see you here next Sunday. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.